Ephesians chapter 6. We, did I say Ephesians? It starts with an E. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. At least Ephesians has six chapters, right? That would have been really bad. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Uh, we have been in this book for a uh, full eight months now. We began to discuss some certain uh, roadblocks that appear in our lives from time to time, and they look like apparent roadblocks, and they look like, at times, apparent injustices sent our way or allowed our way by God himself. And we know as believers that they're not injustices. We know as believers they're not roadblocks, but as God's people, they certainly seem that way when they come. So as we prayed, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, for the Calmans at the beginning of the service, when we approach these roadblocks, these speed bumps, these apparent injustices, there's one thing that we know to do. I really believe 1 Peter 4.19 is really the New Testament's version of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean under your own understanding. In all of your ways, whether it seems like a roadblock or not, Trust him and he'll make your path straight. 1 Peter 4.19 And trust yourself to a faithful creator. An all-wise, sovereign, faithful creator as you continue to do uh, good things. Solomon's going to address a handful of apparent um, roadblocks or injustices here. Uh, and he's going to apply wisdom to these. And uh, I would just ask you to as... Um, earnestly as you can, follow along as we work through uh, these uh, passages together in both chapters 5 and uh, chapter 6. Let's read again uh, together here Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verses 1 through 6, and we may even read down here through uh, verse 9. I hate to hesitate, I hesitate to read that far because I want to make sure we get that far this morning. We'll reread it anyway. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, it is prevalent among men. So this is something that's right, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation taking you, but it's just common to man. This can happen to all of us. A man, and then he gives us a couple illustrations here. There's a single man and there's a family man. So remember that. There's a single individual here, and then there's a family individual. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. Instead, this is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers, here's a married man, a hundred children, and lives life, and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It, referring to the miscarried baby, never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. He there being the family man who has everything and nothing at the same time. Verse 6, even if the other man lives 2,000 years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to the same place. We're seeing a refrain here throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, aren't we? The command to enjoy good things. And this morning, this is one of those messages as a pastor, you know that you're never going to be able to comprehensively uh, burden the hearts of God's people in one sermon with a particular topic. But if there was ever a sermon I preached in the last several years that I wish I could do that, it's this one. Right? What does it mean for a believer to embrace and enjoy good material possession that the Lord's given to us? Right? Verse 7. I was going to talk about work. All of man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have, knowing how to walk before the living? Verse 8 gives us two questions that verse 9 provides the answer. 
what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. Apparently, this too is futility and a striving after wind. So here's the first roadblock that many of us come to, if not all of us come to, at some point in our lives, if not wondering about us personally, wondering about we collectively or those outside of our church. And I'll put this apparent injustice or roadblock in the form of a question. How can we have so much and never feel completely fulfilled? How can someone have so much and not be or feel fulfilled? This is the first question. Dead end number one, if you will. How can someone have everything and ultimately enjoy nothing? I want to qualify here as image bearers, even those who don't know Jesus yet, they're all created in God's image, they're able to accumulate stuff and wealth. God's given those good gifts to them. Romans chapter 3 teaches us that. God's given them good things. It's James chapter 1. He's the father of creation. He's the giver of every good gift. And he gives those who are his image bearers good things to draw their attention to him so they would turn from themselves and trust in his son. That's clear. But even believers, because Solomon's writing as a believer, even believers can fall into the same snare and, or run into the same roadblock if they're not careful. Describe how that can happen. How can we even as believers have everything and it seems nothing at the same time? Solomon tells us here that, he'll tell us other places in the book of Ecclesiastes that prosperity is not always an indication of satisfaction. We know that to be true. Prosperity is not always an indication of of satisfaction. A friend of mine once said that God-given wealth without a God-given ability to use it for spiritual and eternal purpose can be quite a malady. What does a Christian do? We know why God gives good things and allows even image bearers who are unbelievers to accumulate billions and billions of dollars worth of things and and assets and stuff. We know why he does that for them. Why would he allow us to accumulate this? And is it possible for even a believer to have all these things and really live with no eternal purpose as well? And I think the answer to that question is certainly yes, and we're going to work through. How do we we climb our way back to drowning in the sea of God's goodness of having a lot of material wealth and losing our eternal way? How do we get back to that? He'll give us that answer. In June, I had the opportunity to go out to Southern California with my family again. Uh, I love La Jolla, just outside San Diego, for a lot of reasons. It's just beautiful. I think of, you know, Psalm 19 all the time when I go to those places. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? And what you see is his handiwork. And there's a lot of instruction there for me as a believer as I look at that beauty. And I I love to drive through the neighborhoods of La Jolla. Uh, And you know what I love about it? I don't don't just stand in awe of the kind of housing and the uh, Lamborghinis and the Teslas and and, uh, alike, (laughs) Uh, Bugattis. I'm not just amazed at all that I see. I'm actually thankful that God has given those good gifts to people that may even not be saved. I'm thankful for them. I don't get embittered by that. And I pray as I drive through those neighborhoods, Lord, maybe your good gifts would bring them to repentance someday. Right? And Lord, maybe there's even some believers in these neighborhoods that you've given all these things to. Lord, I, help, I pray that you would help them not get distracted by these things and away from their eternal purpose. You say, you're really weird when you drive around those neighbors. Well, it's just, that's just where my brain goes because I think that's where the Bible takes my brain. A year ago this past summer, uh, 
we were down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and maybe you've done this. There's a, there's really a canal system <laughs> in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and they actually have water taxis. You can pay one whole day pass to, to just ride the water taxis in and out of the canals that are really littered with the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. So I bought an all-day pass. It's very inexpensive, and you can go to one place and shop. You can get back on the taxi, go to another place and eat, and go back to another place and just walk around. And, and if you've got a good taxi, uh, I don't know, what do they call them? Uh, taxi captains? They're not taxi drivers. Taxi captains, they're, 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 they're captaining the ship, and they're telling you, you know, who lives here and who built that house and and uh, the owner of this particular hotel chain lives here, and that's just their winter home, and they, you, know, you know how it goes, right? And uh, they're fascinating places to look at. It's a fascinating place to be. And then your mind goes to the exact same place. Lord, I thank you that you've given these people these gifts. We pass by a yacht. It's the yacht capital of the world, from what I'm told. So as you're going through these canals, you'll see yacht after yacht after yacht after yacht. There's one from South Africa, right? And once a year, this particular billionaire from South Africa, right, um, boards this yacht and he pays a whole crew, a whole year, right, to navigate that ship from South Africa to Fort Lauderdale. And that thing sits there. And he pays the crew all year to live on that and do nothing until they're ready to sail back a year later. Right? And I'm excited for that guy. Whoever that guy is, you're like, Lord, save him, right? And, and as these people are li you know, living the life of luxury on a yacht for full 12 months, Lord, allow those good gifts to save them. Bring them to repentance. And boy, I hope they really enjoy those things. And you know, there's believers that have those things too. Lord, I really pray that they would enjoy those things, but for a believer to enjoy those things is much different. While those things are given to unbelief to draw their attention to God again, believers are giving those things to do what? Propel the purpose of God in the gospel of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you don't look at those lifestyles and of those believers or even unbelievers with envy and say, wow, they really have all those good things in their lives and you know, what happened to me, God? Am I chicken feed or why not me? And we all know not to be distracted by that short description of those two particular locations, whether it be La Jolla or Fort Lauderdale, right? Because we know what it means, at least I hope we do. We'll finish with that this morning, what it means to be content. I think it's true, if we're going to be intellectually honest, that even unsaved people who have all these good things could actually say, I feel fulfilled. I feel fulfilled. Some may have all these things and still feel empty. But I've met plenty who feel that God has blessed them with those things and they're right. And since they recognize God as the giver, they're fine. They assume a lot of other things that may not be true, but they feel okay. And certainly while we can't judge a book by its cover and we hope this person may know the Lord, Solomon's point here is to simply say, that we can have, even as God's people, seemingly everything and nothing at the same time. So he's saying here, how do you live with purpose? Remember, Solomon is going to describe, I think here, and we've already read the verses, part of the way he lived his own life. Remember? How can someone have a hundred children? How can, how can, and yet, so he might be speaking now as a man that's been brought back to the Lord in fellowship about his own experience. I don't know. But he knows, he knows what it means to have everything and nothing at the same time, even as a Christian, even as a believer. He lost his eternal purpose way, if you will. And he says, this is heavy. 
and he calls it evil and he calls it prevalent it's common among maybe even God's people He's already told us in chapter 5 and verse 19 and chapter 3 and verse 13 and we're going to see it again in the book of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy good things. Enjoy good things. They're, they're a gift from God. And we read through these two illustrations. There's a single guy beginning in verse 2. I work. He says, I'm wealthy. And look who gets more out of it than me. Others seem to enjoy my wealth more than me. And well, that's a severe dead end. This is, this is dark. <laughs> so he's alone. He's not walking with God. Someone else gets to enjoy his temporary things because he had no heir to leave them to. So his things, the wealth that God gave him, ultimately are not invested in eternal purpose at all. It's all temporary for himself. And we know that it appears a little while and then fades away. So to this single guy, Solomon would say, savings fine, accumulating's fine. It's all from God anyway. But this guy decided to heap it upon himself. Not only did he not allow others to enjoy those gifts in his life, he didn't have anyone in his life to enjoy those gifts with. This would have been a dark form of self-consumption and isolation that led this particular man in this particular illustration to depression and severe discouragement. But then he goes on in verses 3 and 4 and he gives us another illustration. Here's a married guy. And you might think the analogy here is exaggerated. I personally don't think it is because this is the one I think Solomon may have been thinking about his own life and his own past. But even though you might feel that the illustration is exaggerated, the conclusion is still the same. Even if you're not single and you have wealth and quite a large family, your satisfaction cannot be found there either without knowing and keeping God's commandments and figuring out why God created you and recreated you in Christ anyway. Wisdom would tell us that true enjoyment with our families is even found in utilizing wealth together with eternal purpose. We'll discuss that later, but the man in the illusion here, though he has it all, wife, many, many children, much wealth, wasn't even respected at the time of his death. This is kind of the picture of a man who gave his wife and children everything, but didn't have a good relationship with them, so they're all standing around tapping their fingers waiting till he dies and the will can be read. Solomon goes on to say, and maybe even speaking again of his former life, it would have been better for me if I would have died out of fellowship with the Lord dead, never been born at all, or to be stillborn. It would be better for this person to have been miscarried instead of live life with wife, with children, with wealth, for the here and now and not for the then and there. What's the purpose? Reminds us of Jesus' words, right? What does it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Certainly that's serious. But I think Solomon's discussing something here that's more advanced than that. What about a believer who's living a life like this and loses their purpose for why the Lord converted their soul? I found it interesting through studying the cultural aspect of this particular time in Old Testament Jewish history that if a Jewish couple had a baby and that baby was stillborn, they would not name it because it was easier for the parents to forget the child and move on from the tragedy. In our culture, we're the opposite of that. And actually naming the child is... is therapeutic for us. It's helpful for us. And I'm not calling one way or the other wrong, but this is culturally 
Solomon's understanding of the life of this man. It would be, it would be a better for this man to be miscarried unnamed and have no purpose than to have all this and live purposeless. Right? In other words, what really is the eternal value of anyone's particular life? One particular author on this text said that some would argue that, the exi- that existence is better than non-existence and a, a difficult life is better than no life at all. And, and certainly that may be true. All life is given by God. Solomon even says in chapter 9 and verse 4 that a living dog is better than a dead lion. But the problem Solomon faced was not whether existence is better than non-existence, but whether there is any purpose behind the whole seemingly unbalanced scheme of things for any one person. He found no purpose in life with someone being given many things and wealth with no ability or eternal purpose in enjoying them. Again, a stillborn baby is free from all the suffering of the joyless rich man and has even more rest than he does. The stillborn child is really like the rich man in verse 3, for he too is born to a life that is not truly life and, and departs in obscurity. So again for us, what does it profit a believer only if he lives for the here and now and not the there and then? Verse 5 is really the inevitable conclusion. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It's better off than he. Verse 6, the illustration gets more descript. This life could be lived for 2,000 years and still be futile if the person never learns the second part of the verse which teaches another necessary conclusion that he's supposed to enjoy good things. Live 2,000 years, have all of this, and still not know what it means to enjoy good things. But he is enjoying good things every day of his life. That's the point that I want us to grasp. Everything that he's enjoying has a shelf life. And man can certainly enjoy a boatload of good, wealthy things, but all of that stuff has a shelf life. Has a shelf life. And so Solomon's really wrestling with this in his own life. What's my eternal purpose? Yes, fear God and keep his commandments is the conclusion of the whole matter. We know that's how the book finishes, but we're going to take that a little bit here into the life of Christ and then do a couple New Testament passages that are going to bring it all to conclusion here for us. And this is how we get ourselves out of these potential roadblocks you might be stuck in, having everything and nothing at the same time. A friend of mine once said that Solomon's basic principle is that nobody can truly enjoy the gifts of God apart from the God who gives the gifts. To enjoy the gifts without the giver is idolatry, And this can never satisfy the human heart. He goes on to say, enjoyment without God is merely an entertainment. And it doesn't satisfy. But enjoyment with God and his eternal purpose is enrichment. And it brings true joy and satisfaction. So what does this mean for us in our time? Enjoying wealth with the things that come with it can never be the thing or should be the thing that controls the narrative of our life? What should be the reality that controls the narrative of a believer's life regardless how much stuff God's gifted to us? Again, for the Christian, true enjoyment of these things is only attached to obeying God and keeping his commandments and your wealth, regardless of the degree of it, is only a tool to help you know God and to do his will. Any philosophy of the use or disbursement of wealth apart from this is, as we've already stated, idolatry. It's severe affliction, Solomon says in verse 2. Remember, it would be better not to have even been born 
even as a believer, if you're going to have all this stuff be a go through the motions, four services a work a week Christian, and still not really understand the purpose why God saved you and gave you stuff. Even our influence will fade into obscurity and earthly futility if we're not careful. And your life and my wealth will never be more valuable than any temporary thing that we have. It goes on to say in verses 7 to 9 that we've already read about our jobs. The Lord's given us a command to work, so we work. Some of us enjoy our work, some of us don't. But why do we go to work? Because God tells us to work. He told us to work, told mankind to work before the fall, and he tells us to work after the fall. It's just the will of God that we work. He's asking here some, some similar things in relationship to work. What happens if I run into a dead end and I don't find my purpose on earth, even through my vocation and all the education I've invested in, to bring me fulfillment and purpose at work? What if I feel empty even there? And Solomon says, hey, I have. Just let me talk to you through it here a little bit. (laughs) You're never going to find your fulfillment through stuff, and you're never going to find your fulfillment through work. That may be your favorite stuff to do. You're never going to find fulfillment through what you gain from the stuff or the job that you love. And why do I still feel empty and and why? I love it, but I even don't feel satisfied. He talks about in verse 7, the madness of undertaking the consumption of things, which may be the fruit from work, yet leaving ourselves powerless to fill the gaping void of our own human appetite. He asks those two questions in which verse 9 gives us the answers that we've already read. And what is the profit that wisdom has over folly, which the poor man has described as grasping in contrast to the rich man? And verse 9 says, is the answer, it lies in understanding that we should rest content with what lies before us and resist the temptation to make eternal purpose expendable as we just wander off in search of more stuff that the job we enjoy can bring us. There's always an attachment here. Wisdom always attaches the pursuit of material things with eternal purpose. And any time we live this pursuit without this pursuit, that's vain, that's dark, that's purposeless. Go get it. Go get all of it. It's all God's gift. Enjoy every bit of it, but you're really going to not know what enjoyment is until you attach this with it. And then it goes like this for the rest of your life. One author said what the eye sees, remember back to verse 6, even though the eye see it, he can't enjoy it. The wealthy fool fails to see the good and what lies right before him. But even the wise pauper can be content with it. The latter is happy simply to walk through life with less stuff while the former is determined to rove in search of more stuff never being fulfilled. So, to see the nature of the value of God's gifts to you is to find contentment, which is always connected to eternal purpose. So, still in an Old Testament context, Jesus said in Matthew 6, if you'll write this down in the cross-reference of your Bible to Ecclesiastes 6, Matthew 6, 19 and 20, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay? That is the last phrase of this portion of Scripture that is 99% taken out of its context when we use it. 
We use it for a Christian who's been distracted by materialism. We say, well, that's where their treasure is. And that's not what Jesus is exclusively saying is. Follow a man's checkbook and you'll find his heart. Right? That's really not what Jesus is saying here either. What is he saying? He's talking about where are you investing? Not what you are enjoying. Where you invest has everything to do to tell us where you enjoy. I think he's talking about materialism here. He's talking about eternal purpose. Couple that with Luke 16, one, verses 1 to 9, in the parable of the unjust steward. And I think that's a, an appropriate context here. Because remember, we're still in an Old Testament context. For though you know your Bibles well, and the difference between Old Testament and Israel, right? Jesus still lived in an Old Testament context. So we're taking Solomon's wisdom about these roadblocks of having everything and nothing at the same time. And Jesus is saying, yes, you can have everything and nothing at the same time. So he says, okay, take everything and invest it for eternal purposes. Don't lay up treasures here on earth, but treasures in heaven. And then he goes over to Luke 16 and in a parable and he says, look, all right, here's this unjust guy. Would you go with me to Luke 16 real quickly? Luke chapter 16, you're familiar with it if you've known your Bibles for any particular amount of time. And follow along carefully with me as we conclude this morning. It says, now he was also saying to the disciples, who was the peanut gallery? Who was the audience? Believers. Solomon is addressing the faithful. He's returned to the Lord in fellowship. His wisdom is for the faithful. Certainly it applies to unbelief, but he's addressing belief. Jesus is doing the same thing in Matthew 6. Jesus is now doing the same thing in Luke chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an accounting for your management, for you can no longer be the manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the, mess, uh, the, the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of the master's debtors, and he began saying to him, saying to the first, excuse me, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to them, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50, 50% 50 off. Then he said to another, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write out 80. And this master praised the unrighteous manager. Isn't that interesting? The boss appreciated his cunning, his shrewdness because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age. That's unbelief. That's a synonym for those who don't know Jesus. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than even the sons of light, a synonym for believers in Jesus. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So here's Solomon's stuff. Stuff that he had, stuff that many of us have. Maybe not to his degree, but we've got it. What do we do with it? What do we do with all of our stuff? Certainly we enjoy it. We would not be obeying God if we didn't enjoy it. But true ultimate fulfillment of that enjoyment is connecting our use of it and enjoyment of it with eternal purpose. Wealth of unrighteousness, verse 9 goes on to say, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. And then what he says next is powerful too. It says, he who is faithful in the very little thing is also faithful in much. I study, that, study that line out in relationship to the parable. And I trust the Spirit of God would convince your heart when you do that what Jesus is saying here Right? An application of what I really believe to be Solomon's wisdom is simply this. It should be a relatively elementary reality for any Christian to say, everything that God's given me, 
should be used for eternal purposes. Everything God's given me should be used for eternal purposes. So I gave you the illustration last week of enjoying a lot of good things with my family. Vacationing, right? Buying their first car, right? Enjoying a football game on a flat screen TV, right? Maybe paying for them to have cell phones so they can enjoy a little bit of, you know, balanced social media, right? It's okay. Take a trip. Get on a plane. Go where you want. As much as your wealth allows you to do, do it and enjoy it. But why am I doing all of that? Why am I doing all that? I am doing that personally as a dad, right? To draw my family's eyes vertical. Guys, who gave us all this stuff? Can you answer that question for me? Who gave us all our stuff? Say it together. God did, right? So kids, why do you think God gave us all this stuff and all these things to do? Well, let me tell you what the Bible says, right? He gives good things, right? To get us to look at him so that when we compare ourselves to him, we find we fall very, very short of him and his character. So then he needed to bring us back to him. And so he decided to do that through Jesus. Had this conversation with my kids from the time they were tiny, all the way up. We enjoy these things because God wants us to, and we love each other. And we're going to have a ball. We're going to have a blast. But why for us? And then I ask you together as a church family, why for we? So that my kids would know the Lord Jesus Christ and know how to walk with him and understand really the best ultimate gift and the spiritual wealth it provides in Jesus Christ. But then why has God given us as a church all of our accumulated wealth so that we can do what? Luke 16, where even Jesus commends the shrewdness and the creativity of an unjust man. And he says, wow, if we would be as shrewd and as creative in using the wealth that he's given us to make friends for eternity, then we would really know what Solomon meant when he says, you need to enjoy good things. It's still an Old Testament context. Go with me to Philippians chapter 4, real quickly. Now we're in a new, it's in an Old Testament context. Now we're in a New Testament context in Philippians chapter 4, right? And this is a book that's really all about partnership in the gospel. You folks know that if you've been in the Word for any particular amount of time. Again, this whole book is about Paul writing Philippi, thanking them for their doing the gospel together and gospel propagation together. And remember in Acts 16, when he went to Philippi, what's happening? He can't find men who are worshiping God in a synagogue. So he goes down by the river and he finds a lady with another lady and they're, they're having a prayer meeting, but they're not saved. He gives them the gospel. They're born again. And wow, the church in Philippi begins. And And then the whole spread of the gospel to the Macedonian region begins. And and then from the Macedonian region, the whole gospel is spread to the Western world as we know it on the shoulders of one sweet lady named Lydia in Philippi. So that's, that's Philippi. Paul's writing to this church. And what does he tell her at the end of the book? Verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, chapter 4 and verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that that now at the last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunities. Talking about a gift that they were collecting, part of a group of church that were collecting a gift to take care of Paul's needs as he spread the gospel. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my what? In my affliction. Again, verse 13, taken out of context a lot, but he's saying this right? Having everything doesn't make me, and having nothing doesn't break me. Pastor Mike just summarized this up as we were. I was going through wrestling this, my text this morning, this week in my office. He summarized, I was like, that's powerful. Having nothing doesn't break me. Having everything doesn't make me. And in relationship to what? Why is he in affliction? 
He's in affliction because he's promoting the gospel. The gospel's never popular. People don't like Jesus. People don't like to be told that they need to have a transformation on the inside and only he can bring it. Surprise, surprise. Jesus said what? If you think the world hates you, don't, don't forget it hated me first before it hated you. He said that. This is all gospel context. And he's saying all the stuff, Philippians, that you have invested for me, I have received and I'm thankful, but all that stuff has been used for what? Gospel progress. It's brought affliction. It doesn't matter. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I can live with everything and nothing as long as the gospel gets spread. And we do this together. Enjoy your stuff. Enjoy the good things and the good times. Your stuff that God's gifting you with can bring. Always mindful of true purpose. The word content here in the Greek language in Philippians 4 just simply means to be self-contained or adequate. Literally, it means needing nothing from the outside. Wow. Now think about what contentment is here for Paul. We carry all that we need to live and have purpose on the inside of us. It's contained. Our hearts have been transformed and so with it, our purpose. Paul had everything and he could have nothing, yet he could do gospel progress with the people of God. And he found that strengthening for him. I find 1 Timothy 6, 6, so powerful here as well. Paul's words to young Timothy as the pastor of Ephesus. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And consider the eternal work God gave Timothy to do in Ephesus. And I wrote this down, I bolded it, I italicized it, I underlined it. That's about the extent of my uh, creativity using software. I wrote this to finish with. For too long we have associated contentment with things and not purpose. And living in that temporary mindset needs to end here for us as a church family. My poor old soul is growing increasingly weary hearing about sermon after sermon, article after article of people speaking on what contentment is. And it always comes down to being content with what you have and not what we're here for. And many times we can have everything and nothing at the same time. And we wonder why we're not content Contentment. Is things with purpose combined. And by the way, when you're living for a purpose, that is what drives you to make sure you're a good steward of your things. Are you with me? Did you hear what your fallen, broken shepherd just said? If you really live for eternal purpose, that will compel you to be a good steward of stuff. And what do we have in our country? We have a group of evangelicals, including even some of us, who are drowning in the sea of God's goodness of stuff. And we always talk about stewardship, stewardship, stewardship. What does it mean to manage, 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 manage? And what I'm finding out in the scope of all these things that we've just discussed in all these passages is when we have a true burden for the eternal cause of Jesus Christ, then that love that compels us unto the promotion of that love compels us to govern stuff which is from him unto his end with wisdom. We can't steward for the sake of steward. We can't steward just for the sake of I'm saying I'm obeying God by being stewardship principles. No, it's organically connected. And it forever has been since the fall of man into sin. Why do I sit down and do a budget with my wife? Why do I want to pursue a debt-free life even though having debt's not sin scripturally? Why do I want a steward? So I can do more gospel things. 
Why does the world want to get debt free? Why does the world want to have things? So they can quit work early, buy the beach house in, San, in, in, in wherever, San Diego, right? Go do it. Go do it. But why? For me, that's why I budget. I don't want to go anywhere, right? I don't want to go anywhere and not be gospel useful. That's why I do it. I think that's why we do it. Short biblical theology of all that this morning. Why do we have a building fund? Answer that question in light of all that we've looked at now. We talked about personal purpose. Now we talk about collective eternal purpose. So why? Why do we steward to make sure that we can, so we can, so we can, so we can, why do we have a church planning ministry? Why are we connecting thousands of churches across the country and now hundreds across the world? So why? So why? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we have the stuff that we have? Because we've got to take that which God's given us for temporary purpose and invest it for eternal purpose. We've got to make friends for heaven with the temporary stuff that we have now. Contentment is only truly known, again, when we have stuff and we steward the stuff in light of the eternal purpose. I really don't want to have. We're going to continue to do it. I don't want to have any more classes on stewardship for people that don't have a gospel vision. I really don't. I'm tiring of that. I want to have stewardship classes and people coming into them so they know why they're having the stewardship class. Are you with me? We're going to keep having them, but that's the why. Why are we doing this anyway? It's not just to obey God. It's to obey God unto much more of an eternal end. So, if you go back to Ecclesiastes 6, none of us, right, now, have to live in the roadblock, the first two that we see here regarding wealth and work, in these first nine verses. None of us have to, like Solomon allowed himself to, get distracted. And none of us have to be a part anymore of an evil, verse 1, which he's seen under the sun that is prevalent among men. I got distracted by stuff, and I lost my eternal way. Now, what's true joy? What does it mean to enjoy good things? Let's obey the word of God. As Jesus lived it, as Jesus spoke it, and as the New Testament writers wrote it, and God preserved it. God's given us an eternal mission. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Do you know sitting right here this morning, right now, is enough to build a whole building down the street? Do you know it's right here and it's right now? We can do it now. Why and why would we do it? Why? Did we hear? Why are we doing it? No one knows? Did I shock and awe you this morning? You're just like confused? Like, like, why are we doing this? It's eternal purpose, right? It's the spread of the gospel. It's because there's thousands of souls right here in our own community who are wandering this world aimlessly with no eternal purpose, enjoying all kinds of good stuff. And you're the only one that has the message. For if you're visiting for the first time this morning, I don't get this excited every Sunday, so don't freak out. Okay. You need space to shepherd people who have come to know Christ. And if you don't want to do it in a new church building, someone build us a really big house, and we'll have a house church. I don't care. You need places to minister to people. God's doing something here, and it's really good, right? If I die this afternoon, I'm not a morbid dude, but if I die this afternoon, I have to let this burden just kind of rest upon you. Not a guilt trip, a burden, hopefully. The nursery is packed to overflowing. Children's classes are packed to overflowing. We can't even put everyone in an auditorium now overflows, overflowing. We're running out of parking. Why? Because the Spirit of God is doing something. 
through you. And he's doing it through about 45% of you who are living a life to invest in eternal purpose. If the other 55% would steward unto eternal means, this would be done on steroids. My goodness. When we get to heaven, what's the only thing we can take with us? Souls. So why not use stuff for souls? Right? Let's use stuff for souls. Right? Then we'll know how to enjoy good things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. I apologize, Lord, for taking a few minutes extra this morning. I, you know my heart. I really had no intention to do that. Um, by your Spirit's help, I trust the way we've handled the Word of God this morning has been governed by your Spirit. And by your Spirit's help, understanding that, I pray that you would use all of us, no matter what degree of wealth we have, whether we make $10 a year or $10 million a year, Help us to be like Paul who could live with nothing and could live with everything and never get distracted from eternal purpose. Help us, Lord, to understand that's contentment. Things with purpose. Help us, Lord, to the soul this morning to forget about everyone else who's in the auditorium, draw the circle around our own hearts, and it's just me and you, Lord. It's us and you. And help us, Lord, to do right for purpose sake for gospel's sake that through what you've gifted to us could be used wisely creatively with the cunning and the wisdom of even an unjust steward only for eternal purposes. And I pray that Grace Church would always be in existence to glorify you by evangelizing the lost and equipping saints with the goal of Christ-likeness. And all the things would be invested unto that end as we enjoy them with each other and our families and so forth. We love you, Lord. And uh, fill in the gaps where this old broken human may have left some this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.